Well, I wonder if you're in a season or a particular moment in your life where you're asking yourself this question, why is this happening to me? Are you in a season or a situation in your life at present where you're asking yourself this question, why is this happening to me? That might be exactly where you're at due to a family situation, something in your health, something in your finances, something in your workplace, something in your, your mental capacities where you're, you're asking this question, why is this happening to me? Maybe if you're not asking that question this morning, you will be at some stage in your life or a number of times in your life asking that big, in a sense, existential question, why, why God? Is this happening to me? And there was a man called John Bunyan. Some of you have heard of him many times before. Some of you who are just starting out in church life have never heard of John Bunyan before. And I think he must have asked that question hundreds and hundreds of times as he was locked up in a Bedford prison for 12 years. God, why is this happening to me? John Bunyan had it. Uh, a number of children and his, one of his daughters was blind. And for being a man in the 17th century, that was horrendously difficult for the family because he was the breadwinner. And so he was locked up in prison for 12 years. And they told him, look, if you just stop doing what you're doing, John, we'll release you from prison and you'll be able to go back and you'll be able to help your family. But because of what he believed about Jesus Christ, because of what he believed about the Bible, because of what he believed about the gospel, John said no. And I think in the midst of his faithfulness, I think he was human. And he must have asked this question, God, why is this happening to me? And I think the reason it happened to John Bunyan was because of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think Pilgrim's Progress would ever have been written if John Bunyan hadn't been in a Bedford prison for 12 years. And do you know how many times Pilgrim's Progress has been sold? Over 250 million copies. How many people, how many men and women, how many boys and girls over many hundreds of years have responded to the love of Jesus Christ because of what God did through John Bunyan in a prison cell? But he was human. And I think he was asking the question, why did this happen to me? And as we go to Acts chapter 25, we meet the great apostle Paul in Caesarea. He's probably been here for two years. And though he had great faith in God, though he had great a knowledge of who God was. He was the great apostle Paul. He was human just like us. He had weaknesses and he had temptations and he had fears. And I think like John Bunyan, he must have asked the question, God, why am I here incarcerated in Caesarea when I have so much to do for the spread of the gospel? God, why have you got me here? Well, I think we're going to learn this morning the reason why God had him here was so that you and I might learn Three simple words that God will provide. That God will provide. If you're looking for a more technical term, it's called the doctrine of God's providence. We've been singing about that this morning in the great songs that have been chosen for us by Theo and the band. The fact that God is in control. 
And there's a sense when we look at our lives and John Bunyan's life and the Apostle Paul's life and our lives, we believe as Christians that God is sovereign. That means he's in control of all things. But the doctrine of God's providence takes it one step further. It's the fact that not only that God is in control of all things, but that he provides in the midst of his control. Where we get our word provision, where he gives us what we need, we hear this word providence. So here is Paul in prison for two years in Caesarea, but God is still providing exactly what he needs at exactly the right time. You see, God has a plan and a purpose for Paul's life. He was on the road to Damascus. He hated Christianity. He hated Jesus, but God came and spoke to him in Acts 9. You're going to be my chosen witness to take my name to the Gentiles. And then in a vision, in Acts 23, God spoke to Paul and he said, the gospel is going to get all the way to Rome. Paul, you're going to get there. So what we're going to learn from this is that God will provide the resources we need to get his mission done. Isn't that good? In your life, God is going to provide the resources you need to get what he wants you to do done on this earth. This is the doctrine of God's providence. It's the truth that God will provide. We don't have the time, but if you were to read Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul, when he was in prison, said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so Paul, in his humanity, like you might be looking at your circumstance this morning, say, God, I have no idea what you are doing. And Johnny's talking about that you're sovereign, and God's, Johnny's talking about the fact that you're a God of providence, and yet my life looks like the antithesis of that. Paul must have asked those questions of God. God, where is your provision? God, where is your control? Here I am, locked up in a prison cell, and everywhere I go, it's one tribunal after another, one ruler after another, and it seems as if the gospel's not advancing, and yet in every place, Paul's speaking to the great and the good about the gospel. And so people talk about the mystery of God's providence. There's a mystery. Who can understand the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? His ways are loftier than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Paul said at the end of Romans, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so we're going to see God will provide. But how will he provide for us? Well, look at the first movement in the narrative. It's in the heat of satanic scheming. Let's funnel down into the text. God will provide in the heat of satanic scheming. Look at verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Who was Festus? He was the governor of the province of Judea, who acts quickly, decisively, and justly, but who does not understand Paul's beliefs. Caesarea was the political capital of Judea, but Jerusalem was the ancient religious capital. And so how is Festus treated by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem? Look at verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he might summon him to Jerusalem 
because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Some of you remember a couple of chapters ago that 40 men took an oath that they wouldn't eat again until Paul was killed. Now, this is two years later. I'm sure those uh, particular gentlemen managed to wriggle out of their oath uh, so that they were still alive. But you can imagine these 40 men still have Paul in their target. And they want to get him back to Jerusalem so that they can ambush Paul and kill him. But how did Festus, the Roman governor, respond to the Jewish request? Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said Festus, let the men of authority among you go down with me to Caesarea. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now, when I looked at Gen- or Acts 25, I wonder, what am I going to get out of this text this week? Yes, it's the doctrine of God's providence that God will provide. But what we see here is conflict. There's two sides to this narrative. There's satanic scheming, and there's the plans and purposes of God. And you know from Genesis 3 onwards, Satan and his emissaries and his minions have literally been hell-bent on destroying gospel advance. He managed to trick Adam and Eve into believing the lie rather than the truth. And yet there was this promise given from God that he was going to send the seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent yet is literally hell-bent on destroying the seed of the woman. He knows that a Messiah is going to come. He knows that Jesus is going to come. And so Satan, from Genesis 3 onwards, is doing all in his part to stop the advance of the gospel. And he's at work behind the scenes. He's moving in the hearts of these Jewish leaders to eradicate Paul, to destroy Paul. And we face that ourselves today. We face satanic opposition in the world in our own human flesh, and through the wicked schemes of the devil. Paul, who felt it perhaps more than anybody else, apart from the Lord Jesus, summarized this this fight. He said in Ephesians 6, verse 10, I'll read it to you. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, the great apostle says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, not when the evil day comes, but in the evil day, and having done all you can, stand firm. This is our call. We are in a warfare. And humanly, many people will try to pass away many of the things that are happening in this world through human reason and insight. But let me tell you, Christian, you're in a spiritual battle. Genesis 3 onwards, anyone who seeks to follow Christ, anyone who seeks to be a witness for Christ in their family, in their workplace, in their cul-de-sac, in their apartment complex, in their sports club, in their art club, wherever you are, you're in a warfare. Satan wants to derail you in your work, as he does with the Apostle Paul. He's got schemes. He's deceiving those who 
are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet God is mightier and stronger than any satanic presence. And one writer says here, when God is not overtly seen in our lives, he is covertly at work. He's not overtly seen in this narrative in Acts 25, but God is covertly at work. You see, for Paul, as he stepped back, he says, here I am in prison for two years, and it seems as if nothing is advancing. But from God's perspective, God was setting up for Paul the witnessing opportunities of a lifetime to preach the gospel to the most influential people in Israel and in Rome. God will provide. Even if you feel like you're in the heat of a warfare and a battle against Satan and his cosmic powers. God will provide. But he provides secondly in the midst of the fiercest of trials. So let's go deeper into this trial with the apostle Paul. Look at verses 6 to 12. After he had stayed among them for more than eight or ten days, you can only imagine the whining and dining that must have gone on with Festus in Jerusalem. He went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And this image might help you imagine what the scene was like. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Can you imagine the scene? Paul, who's been locked up in prison for two years, no doubt in his humanity at times asking God, why is this happening to me? You promised me in the vision, the Lord Jesus, you came to me and you said the gospel will get to Rome, but my circumstances look as if you're not in control. And these Jewish leaders are now encircled around him like hungry lions ready to devour him. Some of them have taken an oath that they would see Paul dead. Paul's alone, yet he's not alone. As he writes his last letter to young Timothy, he said some of his final words, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. He's alone, but he's not alone. God's not seen, but yet he's everywhere here. And they bring many, look at verse seven, they bring many serious charges against Paul, but they couldn't prove them. The Lord Jesus spoke of this in his ministry in Matthew 5.11. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And sadly, Satan is working in the hearts of these Jewish leaders because Satan is a slanderer. He's an accuser. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. And he's bent on destroying the people of God and the purposes of God and the plans of God. His mission objective is conflict. William Hendrickson says, having been cast out of heaven, he's filled with fury and envy. His malevolence is directed against God and his people. 
His purpose is therefore to dethrone his great enemy and to cast all God's people, in fact, all people into hell. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He has a powerful, well-organized army and has established an outpost within the very hearts of those he aims to destroy. Satan is behind not the advance of the gospel, but the destroying of the gospel. Paul standing in the power of God. Look at verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? before me. But Paul, standing, said this, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul said, I'm not running from the tribunals. I'm not running from a court case. If I've done something wrong, I want to be held accountable for the deeds that I've done wrong. But he knows he's got a clear conscience. He knows he's done nothing wrong. But he's willing to die for the advance of the gospel. Even though he was human, and even though he's full of fear, he was willing to give up his life for Christ. And how many of us in our lives are so afraid of giving up control to God that it's stopping us doing what God is asking us to do? Our fears and our anxieties and our dreads can sometimes prevent you and me from doing the very thing that God is asking us to do. So Paul here in his weakness, so many times he said, God's power is made perfect in my weakness. His strength is sufficient for me so that his power might be made perfect for me. I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might be made manifest in me. So here he is in the courtroom with the Jews circled around him like hungry lions with unfounded claims, but they want Paul dead. He says, I'm willing to die for Christ. What a challenge for us. What a legacy men and women of faith have done in going to distant parts of this world, going into villages where there were witch doctors, going into villages where people had all sorts of armory to kill them, but yet they believed God was calling them to go to that tribe, to go to that nation, to go to that people group, because the gospel must advance. Satan would do all he could to stop the advance, and sometimes people did lose their lives. Do you remember Jim Elliott? But think as he stood out in faith and was willing to put his life on the line, how many people have heard the call to go? How many people have listened to Elizabeth Elliot then testified to the providence and the sovereignty of God in losing her husband? The gospel advances. Paul was willing to offer up his life. But verse 11, but if there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And he said, I appeal to Caesar. The appeal to Caesar was known as a 
provocatio ad Caesarem. It was a Roman citizen's right to ask for direct judgment by the emperor. It was one of the oldest rights of Roman citizens. And William Larkin said this, God has providentially so ordered the decisions of individuals and nations that embedded in Roman law is an appeal mechanism that can now be employed by his witness, who was born a Roman citizen. But it requires Paul to exercise faith and courage and integrity and shrewdness. God's providing in a courtroom filled with Romans and Jews who wanted to take his life. So what happens next through this human leader, Festus? Verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar, you have appealed, and to Caesar, you shall go. What else do we learn here? That God is a promise-keeping God. God's a promise-keeping God. Let me read it to you as I've already alluded to it. In Acts 23, Paul in the cell In the middle of the night, we read Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So as Paul is standing there in Caesarea after two years in prison, and and these Jewish men are all around him with all these false accusations and charges, wanting to take his life, he knows deep in his heart and in his mind, in the midst of the fear and the anxiety, God is going to get me to Rome. It's a promise-keeping God. And as we've said before, though humans walk out on the promises that they may make in our lives, who never walks out on his promises? God. Philippians 1, Paul writing towards the end of his life in a prison cell, for what God starts in us, he's going to what? Complete. So what does God control over our lives? But I think firstly, he controls all of our lives in general. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. He plans our lives in general. But secondly, I think he plans all our days on earth. Psalm 139 verse 16, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written... Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. But as I said earlier, there's a mystery to God's providence. Some of you I know very well, some incredibly difficult things have happened to you. And I've sat with you or another elder, and we don't know what to say. And the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. And so some of the old writers used to talk about the bitterness of providence or a frowning providence. But yet in the midst of those, you have testified, so many of you, that God is still in control, that he's still working out his purposes. This verse that blows our minds, and we know that in all things, God works together for good. It's not that the things necessarily are good, but that in all things, God can work together for the good. 
Joseph, as he gets to the end of his life, as he looks back to his family turning against him, throwing him into a pit, wanting to kill him, Joseph being in a prison for 20 years, no doubt asking this question, God, why is this happening to me? You appeared to me in a vision. You said that I was going to be a ruler. I got a multicolored dream coat. God, why is this happening to me? And then he gets to the end of the narrative and he goes, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. There's a mystery to this blows our mind in trying to understand. But God's in control in the midst of the trials. But lastly in this narrative, look, look at the fact that God will provide in the hearts of secular leaders. He'll provide in the hearts even of secular leaders. We read in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so now Paul's not only going to teach people about Jesus before the governor, but now before a king, because he's locked up in a prison. So verse 13, now when some days had passed in Caesarea, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, Agrippa, there's a man left here as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against this guy, Paul, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense confirming the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man Paul to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I suppose you can almost imagine. Festus speaking to King Agrippa going, Agrippa, I thought they were going to bring some serious charges against this guy that he had killed people, that he was stealing money, that he was talking down you and the Romans. I thought he was going to bring something serious. But this is what he had fallen out with him out. Look at verse 18. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evil as they supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom this guy Paul asserted to be alive. That's what the fight was over. They're stumbling over who Jesus is. Surely it's no big deal. Just some dead man whom this guy claims to be alive. Little did Festus know that the resurrection of Jesus is the biggest deal in the world. Little did he know if only he knew the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So Festus, don't worry about whether somebody's been killed or not. Don't worry about whether someone's been extorted or not. Festus, focus on the fact, is Jesus Christ the resurrection and the life? And that's why God's got Paul in prison. So that these men might hear. So that these men might know. 
So verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa sent to Festus. I quite like to hear the man myself. This is why Paul's in prison. So that he can speak to the governor Festus. So that he can speak to King Agrippa. But little do these two gentlemen know that through this Jewish system and this Roman system, God is working in their hearts. And actually through all these trials and tribunals and difficulty, God is protecting Paul, allowing him to preach the gospel, and he's moving him along to Rome. This is the mystery of God's providence, that he's in control even when we can't see him working overtly. So on the next day, verse 23, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, literally it says in the original text, with great fantasia, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Do you see the earthly human power? And little Paul coming in with his chains. But God's heavenly power at work in this man's life. And so Festus, verse 24, said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I find that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I might have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa, verse 1 of chapter 26, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And you're going to have to come back next week to listen to Pastor Chris and hear what Paul said. You can't, of course, read it for yourself. Today we've talked about the doctrine of God's providence that God will provide. But as we close, who or what was God's greatest provision? Consider the providence of God, the provision of God in the death of his own son. Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Romans 8.32, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Staggering. Acts 4.27, earlier in this book, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Romans in Jesus' life, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do this is describing what God was doing, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's incredible to think that God provided for us in the giving up of his only son. 
one writer said as I close, every act of treachery, every act of brutality against Jesus was sinful and evil. But God was in it. The lash on his back, the thorns in his head, the spit on his cheek, the bruises on his face, the nails in his hands, the spear in his side, the scorn of the rulers, the betrayal of his friend, the desertion by his disciples. These were all the result of sin. And yet the Bible says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Let me encourage you. If you're asking, God, why is this happening to me? God will provide. And he's ultimately shown it through giving us his greatest gift in providing his own son. So let's just take a few moments to pray as we respond in song. Father, when we look at great doctrines of the Bible, it's easier to read about them. It's easier to speak of them. We confess often horrendously difficult to live in the midst of them. And yet, our Father, we thank you that tonight, if we're in Christ, we can put our heads on the pillow in the midst of horrendous circumstances and where we can't see you overtly at work in our lives, help us to trust that you, you are covertly working behind the scenes. We thank you, our Father, that we can see that ultimately in the giving up of your only Son, where the world looked on and the disciples had deserted him who had tried to stop the plan unfolding. And yet it was your predetermined plan. It was your set purpose from before the foundation of the world that you would provide in giving us your only son. So Father, help us when we subjectively don't feel your love or we can't see your love. Help us to look at the object of truth that on the cross you were reconciling the world to yourself because we ask this in Jesus' name.